Welcome to the Drum History Podcast. I'm your host, Bart Vanderzee, and today I am very pleased to have back our old friend of the show, Brooks Tegler. Brooks, welcome back. <laughs> Glad to be here. Old friend. <laughs> old friend. Yeah, it's been um it's been a few years. You were you were on a really early episode here um, where we did a biography of uh of Gene Krupa, yeah. which I'll tell people that we're gonna talk a little bit about Gene's background um as a as a you know, as a person, but G, uh, but Brooks did episode seven of the podcast, which was really a deep dive into Gene's life. But <laughs> what we're talking about today is Brooks has just released um, on Hudson Digital uh, his book that he's been working on for basically a decade, uh, GK, The Tools That Built the Gene Krupa Legend. So first off, congrats on releasing this uh, this unbelievable, you know, documentation about gene's life that's pretty huge thank you thank you i'm I'm pleased that it's finally out there (laughs) yeah oh my god that must be such a relief i remember you talked about it in our episode but man i mean 10 years of the irony of all of that is the fact that you know a lot of people have been expressing an interest in seeing the book for several years ever since i started talking about it and I, I got to the, I got to the point where I was actually feeling like, you know, am I am I'm just posing here because, uh, you know, I would keep talking about this book coming out and then nothing was there. So I had to pick a spot where I finally just said, OK, I'm going to close this. And, you know, maybe there's a there's a new chapter or a new portion or whatever, which I can add to later. Which is the cool thing about um, digital books that you can you were telling me before, before we started, when we were kind of getting our technical stuff figured out that you can add on to this book later, which yeah. I've never really thought about. That's so cool. Yeah. Well, I got to say that probably one of the greatest people I've worked with in my life is Rob Wallace. And when he told me that that was actually not, not only was it possible, but it was okay and preferred that solved a huge dilemma for me because as I've said to a number of friends of mine, there's 320 pages in that book, but there's probably another 500 pages in my head. <laughs> and, you know, who wants to get an 800 page book? So that's a lot. Yeah. I love the fact. Plus, I've also, through experience with things like John Hancock's marvelous book on the Carnegie Hall concert, there, a lot of information doesn't actually appear until something like that is, is published. Yeah. So, you know, I'm still anxiously waiting for that guy who says, yeah, my grandfather won that Gene Krupa snare drum in 1936, and it's up in my attic, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's the information that would be coming out, is more info on, uh, you know, they find something hidden somewhere, or like that, uh, you know, container full of drums that you authenticated for yeah, Charlie Watts, which right. maybe we'll touch on later. Um and and I should tell people too that I'm gonna I'm gonna try and start doing it with every episode. But um, uh, Brooks is kind enough; he's gonna help me and do like an extra little twenty, you know, fifteen twenty minute Patreon bonus episode that we're gonna record. So if you like this and want to hear more, I think we're gonna talk about Gene kind of as a celebrity and a little bit just more about Brooks and his involvement and and who knows what. We'll just kind of see what happens. There'll be. Some extra stuff on an, on a bonus episode you can get through um, joining Patreon at drumhistorypodcast.com. But um, anyway, on that note, uh, 
So Brooks, I think maybe I think a lot of people know about Gene Krupa. Um, he's just just this you know legend in the drum world of being such like a gentleman, and he's a celebrity. And and I've always had a I don't know why. I mean, I do know why. I, I've always had sort of a connection with him because my grandpa, who was kind of why I got into drums, um, grew up in 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 you know more of the upstate New York area, and would always tell these stories of like. Hey, uh, hanging out at like, and I, you're going to know, obviously, you know, so much more than me, but hanging out at like Eddie Condon's bar and things like that. And I think that, and he was taught by George Wetling for a little bit and, um, Mm. and they just kind of crossed paths, I think with Gene being a Yonkers guy. But, um, anyway, on that note, that's kind of why I've always just loved Gene and had this sort of been drawn to him. But why don't you give us the, uh, the kind of the the ten cent tour here of like a little bit about Gene, top level. If people want to hear more, go to episode seven and really get the deep dive. But like, who is Gene? Why is he so important? And uh, what was his you know what is his legacy? Well, I think probably most know. I mean, any drummers over the age of six are you know aware that gene was born in chicago in 1909 yesterday was indeed his birthday yes um and the beginnings of his career were always i mean they've been over dramatized in terrible movies about him <laughs> but i'll stay off that soapbox <laughs> um he he was immediately fascinated by music um, he started out as playing saxophone, not drums. Um, drums were a, an affordable option in the catalog where he was the music store. He was working with his older brother. So he got those. But obviously, it was, I think, more than just the fact that they were the cheapest thing in the book. Um, he was always fascinated by playing. He was always fascinated by the different sounds, the different voices, et cetera, et cetera. He carried that innocence about that instrument straight through his entire life. Loved, had a, a just a voracious appetite for learning anything and everything about percussion and drums and drumming. Was smart enough, I think, forward-thinking enough to listen to some cylinder recordings of expeditions to to Africa where they recorded African drummers. Hmm, that's cool. Uh, and so much of what became his signature floor tom work was based predominantly on that. Um, and I, one has to assume that Gene sat down and worked out patterns by ear when he was young. Yeah. Because it wasn't until later in his career that he actually was able to read and transcribe music. But his ears were a direct, solid connection to his arms, his wrists, and his hands. And he was able to put what he heard in practice quickly, obviously. But obviously, growing up in Chicago, hanging out in the jazz scene of Chicago, which included people like Dave Tuff. Baby Dodds, or as he used to say in his Chicago accent, Baby Dots, <laughs> and people like that. He came from a much more raw jazz upbringing than the people that he eventually started to hang out with in New York and brought all of that influence with him. Moved to New York in the late 20s, got married, 
uh, to Ethel and started his just rocket uh, trip to success with Benny Goodman, where a lot of the innovations in drums and drumming were actually taking place in the late 30s, mid to late 30s. By 38, had started his own bands because he always wanted to, because there were things he wanted to do. The first thing he did was add a second floor tom, which was, you know, details about that particular drummer in the book. Uh, Most drummers were not using a 16 by 20 inch, 20 lug floor tom. (laughs) Um, And he made good use of quite a few of them. Yeah. So, and then it gets, you know, the, the rest of the details of his career, the whole focus shifted from Chicago to New York. But one of the things I learned while working on this book was how much New England had become a pivotal area in his life and his career. Hmm. Um, yeah. Awesome. Be, well, uh, I don't know for certain, but I believe not one, but both of his wives were actually from New England. Interesting. Um, his many, many adventures uh, to the Zildjian plant in Quincy, Massachusetts. The, the tune, Massachusetts, was a huge hit for him and the band. And many, many other connections. Many of his good friends, people that he would just go visit, were in New England. They were in Massachusetts. They were, you know, I mean, there was so much going on in places like Boston in those days. Uh, he toured quite a lot with Benny, where I think a lot of these friendships were originally generated. And these are people that, that Gene was friends with his entire life. Um, and it was just kind of interesting to learn because you don't think about it. Most people don't know anything about Gene. They think Chicago and then New York. Mm-hmm. And it stops there. Well, he, you know, he established friendships, of course, all over the country, in many respects, all over the world. But there was yeah. something about New England that just kind of keeps coming up. That's interesting. Um, yeah. So there, there must yeah. have been a hell of a jazz scene in Boston. You know, uh, Boston, even today, I run into things where, uh, like, I'll meet people through the show and a lot of really great people like hardworking drumming you know people it, it, it i'm never surprised when they say i live in you know boston or right. in new england like our mutual friend uh don mccauley who's just been you know oh that guy yeah that guy yeah who both really you know <laughs> probably have, probably one of the greatest people i've ever worked with and met don is just a wonderful guy exactly and he's a new england guy but um yeah so you know good uh good good folk there um, yeah but I think also the fact that uh, so much of the drum industry started there. Exactly. You got your George Stone. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just a a fascinating little sideline to learn while going through a lot of this research. And of course, as I said, you know, Gene's influence spread worldwide. I mean, there are people who are, staunch, you know, fight to the death Gene Krupa advocates in places like the UK and and France, uh, Germany, places where Gene went. Um, it's just a monumental influence all yeah. over the place. And it continued um, straight through, I have to say, you know. Um, when he started his band in March of 38, 
when he put the when he closed down the big band in '51, went along with jazz at the Philharmonic and small group things like that, television appearances. I mean, it really. I've always said, and I say it in the book. He's the drum counterpart to Louis Armstrong, in my opinion. Yeah, you that's know? a good one. Where it basically it changed the world. Like, yeah, in in one way or another. Even if you know. Joe Schmo in, you know, um, Sheboygan doesn't really know about Gene Krupa. In some way, it's affected the music down the line. You know what Absolute, I mean? Like, absolutely. The, the music and the equipment. And I have to say, probably to a certain extent, the demeanor of drummers. Yeah. I don't think I've ever noticed a deeper sense of community with other instrumentalists that I've seen with drumming. I agree completely. You know, I mean, I, I, I needless to say, leading, working with hundreds and hundreds of horn players, if you get two guys together that have the same Selmer Mark VI, they'll talk for days. But all it takes is one guy showing up with his Yamaha Alto. <laughs> and, and that sense of community goes straight out the window. <laughs> no, I've even seen it with us drummers where like, you know, you're sitting at like a, like it happened to me once like at a dentist's office and you see someone like tapping their fingers in a certain way <laughs> and you go you i even said to one guy once i was like are you a drummer and they and he was like yeah i am and it's like well, you can tell because obviously you're if you're tapping in a, a rhythm and hitting your foot and it's like right there you get this like this bond and and it happens a lot with even i'd say musicians i had a handyman hanging a like a chandelier in my house the other day and he was a guitarist but there was this like ch total cosmic change in like how we talked <laughs> after he we found out we're musicians. But if, right. if it's drummers, you go even uh, even deeper. But uh, yeah. do you think with Gene um, and and to kind of bring your book into this? So so obviously again to hear the whole story on Gene, go to the episode seven. But um, Gene obviously is a is a is a handsome guy. He was at the right time when jazz was booming. I mean, it's almost like Gene was like the perfect storm of like right place, right time, right guy. Gear is changing. The world is changing. It's becoming more, more modern, roaring 20s. Um, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, he, he just came in at the right time. I, I do believe that with any successful career, probably the bulk of that success can be attributed to just luck. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it could have been that Gene had refused to join Benny's band because Buddy Rogers was paying him so much money. He, he couldn't leave that gig and history would have been quite different. So sure. I mean, fate has a lot to do with it, but it's what people do once that luck shows up and Gene came through as it were i mean he he he, he probably there, there are a number of things i refer to in the book about his nervousness about starting his own band as, as badly as he wanted one he was scared to death and thought several times about just bagging the whole thing as many sidemen or people who have used to be sidemen mm -hmm. will do uh, it's quite a step because as i've said Based on my own experience, there's a certain element of the minute you start your own band, you cease your musical development because all of a sudden you're somebody else. You're a band leader. Sure. 
you know, a band leader who plays drums is the worst. Because <laughs> yeah. not only do you have to make all the band leading decisions, you've got to schlep your equipment in there. And, you know, that old legend about being the first in and the last out, boy, there's no better example than a drummer being a band leader. No, anyway. And it, it's like when you get with a with a job if you're like you know one of the the guys one of the gang one of the you know the people working there and then you become the manager or yeah, the boss right ooh things change a little bit sure and they changed a lot for gene but gene never changed himself he admitted that it it went to his head for a while um but he also frankly was the victim of other people not wanting to let him be successful yeah um so he, you know, slings and arrows and all of that sort of thing was quite applicable to Gene. Outrageous fortune being that there were people who just wanted to knock him off any pedestal he came near. They still do. There are plenty of people out there who just cannot, will not acknowledge the value of this man and his legacy and what he's done for jazz and drumming. They can't even bring themselves to call him a jazz drummer. Hmm. Um, so they're lost in my opinion, but yeah, he came through. I mean, he, he did it with class. He did it with taste and you know, there's just nobody like him. Never has no. been except possibly Louis Armstrong. Yeah. yeah. You know? And, and we'll talk about him and buddy rich later a little bit in the show, but there's, there's like that, Ooh. you know, <laughs> you know, that, that guy where everyone loves buddy but they're, they're not and people i always post whenever i post a video of of the the gene krupa buddy rich battle quote unquote someone always goes oh man buddy's blowing the doors off of him you know and but it's it's different it's just a different type of of um of drumming and and obviously as a person and um gene is known as being such a, a nice guy and buddy's Famous for having an attitude. Um, yeah. Well, you know. true. And unfortunately, this is something that I always have an issue with this. Um, in that, in particular, that Sammy Davis Jr. show recording yep. shows an unfortunate bad moment for Gene. And it, to look at it out of context is, in my opinion, not really fair. Um, because it was the beginnings of Gene's bad health directly affecting how he played well he Couple, died seven years later i mean he it's not i mean he was it's towards the end of his life yeah and it doesn't show gene in the light that it should okay i mean fine it's real it's true gene and you know the to me the greatest accomplish, accomplishment about that particular clip is what gene's able to do in spite of his own illness um, and without that as the preface mm -hmm. to watching that video, it just looks like he's, you know, he shouldn't be there next to Buddy. <laughs> yeah. And the whole thing about Buddy was that he always realized that as far as Slingerland and an endorsement, Gene was the guy, and he always seemed to interpret that as competition. And yet, at the same time, there was no greater advocate for Gene than Buddy. Yes. You know? yeah. So, again, it's so much more complicated. 
And I hate to say it, but there are lots of people out there that just go for that shiny object stuff, mm-hmm. you know, when they and don't apply any depth to what they're seeing or what they're showing. And, yeah. you know, there, there are volumes written about that kind of thing that just really mean very little in the, you know, in the grand sense of what Gene is all about, what Buddy was all about. Exactly. Yeah. There, so, uh, it's, it's, it's not apples and oranges in a way, but it's, it's just different people. Yeah. Um, but, and, and I love that. I know, I know you talked about it in our other episode where, like you said a second ago, Buddy just was a, such a big fan of Gene and, and there's not this competition. And um, I mean, really they're, they're both two of the, I mean, you, obviously you have your John Bonhams and you have all these guys who were such famous drummers, but those two guys are, household names to this day where everyone knows them. So I think just that alone is there's plenty of room to be, um, you know, and the fact that in my opinion, again, you're the expert. So, but like the fact that Gene was the one who was basically like the, you know, with sing, sing, sing and stuff like that was the first guy to really do these kind of drum solos. He really paved the way for what buddy could do, even though they're not that far apart in age. I mean, isn't, it was seven years different. Yeah, not that big of a difference. But when the world of music is completely changing, I mean, oh yeah, seven years. Yeah, it was. It was a considerable difference. The irony is the fact that Buddy, of course, excuse me, was playing drums before Gene, um, because oh, of yeah. his because of his vaudeville career. Sure. And I, this is one of those things that, um, frankly, it bugs me a lot that people can't resist this. They cannot accept two things without making a comparison. Yeah. And it's a comparison that has no value at all. You know, if you could make a comparison because you're buying one or the other, and you could go factually down the list of of pros and cons for each one, that's not what you do in art, in music. With you know, (laughs) it's, it's, it's something that should just be left alone, frankly. There's yeah. Buddy, there's Gene, there's Morello, there's there's Butch, there's I mean, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Well, okay. So on that note, we'll leave it alone. So um, <laughs> I want to talk more about your book because I mean it almost I mean, again, I recommend people get it. Um what's before we talk about it, what's the easiest way for people to get this book? Is it going to Hudsonmusic.com and searching for it there is that probably the, the qu- quickest way to get it i believe so and i believe it's still in the new releases portion of their website but yeah that would be just you know straight to hudson pub, pub i think it's just hudson music yeah dot com um, and yeah. you can do a search and you'll see type in gk or whatever and it should be popping up there but yeah so when i'm looking through this book i mean and i i knew from you know seen some of your work that you sent me last time where you're authenticating the drums for Charlie Watts that we've talked about in another episode, I believe episode 14 with Brooks, <laughs> but um, it, it it's almost like a court document where there's like arrows. It's so like, <laughs> like, like what snare is this? What? I mean, it, it, it has so much detail. I'll take that as a compliment part. It's a big compliment. I mean, it is the most like, um, just detailed and and uh and and like uh what's the word i'm looking for just uh you 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 went through everything with a fine tooth comb and 
and basically it's everything you'd ever want to know about Gene's gear and and everything like year by year, almost month by month. Um, so how did you? I mean, I don't want to have you give away your secrets, but like, how do you? What's your process on authenticating? Let's say the throw off on a particular snare or whatever. You can pick a you know subject, but how are you doing this? How are you making all of these, um, you know, unbelievable findings? And, and well, a lot of, a lot of it has to do with my own personal knowledge of the equipment. The fact that I've been a collector of Slingerland and Radio King drums since 19, good grief, 78, I guess, 79. So I have firsthand experience on a lot of the nuances of that particular kind of drums. And of course, uh, you know, a lifelong study of gene, there are things you can recognize that most people don't even pay attention to that are the, the details, the nuances that if you have the photographs of Gene, then you have a support system for showing what stuff was. I can remember as a kid looking at pictures of Gene still with Benny, where I'm looking at his snare drum and there are four holes underneath the throw off well i had to find out what that meant well okay that meant further study so it was all just this ongoing cascade of gathering information studying pictures i mean i've i've been accused by friends of you know zoning out while i'm staring at a picture <laughs> there's so much in one picture that to find yeah. That I would, you know, I mean, I used to do the same thing just looking through the Slingerland catalog. And, you know, so looking at details like the fact that there's a 9 by 13 Tom Tom on Gene's lap in a particular movie scene, realizing right away what that drum is, realizing it's the same drum that shows up everywhere for like 10 years. Mm. Um, it's a matter of, Maybe it's just because I'm such an ardent Sherlock Holmes fan that, you know, one deduction leads to the next answer, but it also leads to like 20 more questions. So yeah. that's all I've done. You know, it's, uh, it started with pictures, looking at films of Gene playing. That, of course, is what probably sets me apart from my dear friend, Jerry Brennan. Jerry has a phenomenal knowledge of, of recordings of Gene and hundreds of other drummers, too. I mean, it's the kind of thing where I marvel at what he knows as far as dates, times, places, personnel, stuff that I could never retain. So I guess, you know, if we were to ever sit down and do a conference about Gene, we would pretty much, with the help of Paul Testa, be able to cover every detail about Gene's entire life. Yeah. Um, but that's pretty much it. It's just looking at pictures really is where it starts. And of yes. course the desire yeah. to do it. And I mean, it's to explain a little bit about the detail. Like, I mean, so the book you said is 320 pages, right? -ish. Right. So, I mean, you know, halfway through, I'm just kind of scrolling down and there's, you know, measurements on the width of Gene's hi-hat in certain <laughs> photos. There's, the felts he's using to prop it up in, in a way. I mean, there are um, 
photos from all the movies. There's segments on, I mean, right, right here, there's the tilt on his ride symbol. Um, <laughs> there's, there's so many cool things. There's all of his symbols you have documented here. Um, now, obviously in, in one conversation, there's too much to cover in, in, you know, every little detail, but sure. Is there anything that you found in your research? Like I know that there's the, like at the Chicago drum show where, um, it was set up was, it was, uh, you know, he had the Dynasonic that came out and, and I don't think he used it much, but in, in the big picture, are there many things that you, in your 10 years of working on this, were just totally surprised by like, uh, you know, that just, you didn't think mm. could be, and then it turns out there it is. Well, I, I would have to say that the existence of the two Dynasonics was certainly a big one on that list. Uh, although I agree, I don't think he liked them. Um, uh, his uh, his ex-wife referred to them as the buddy snares. <laughs> and it's the, like the story of the guy in Australia that popped up on Facebook recently. I'm afraid I can't remember his name. But he was a student of Gene's. Gene gave him a Ludwig snare drum that reportedly was given to Gene by Buddy. You know, again, all of these things. And that has a lot to do with why I started this book also. Um, and I, it would not surprise me that Buddy just, you know, I really like this snare drum, Gene. You should try it and handed it to him. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Buddy certainly didn't have the same affection for what he was using for the most part yeah. that Gene did. Um, and so, yeah, I think that these are things that, um, how many years, you know, has the rumor been flying around that Gene had a Dynasonic? And then, of course, the question is, where did that rumor start? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was a big shocker. Um. I don't know. I'd have to give some thought. Um, I think, I mean, there are so many discoveries that I made through the course of working on this book. They were quite surprising. And yet at the same time, because of the way they were discovered, they made perfect sense. So I think that took a little of the edge off the excitement. Uh, yeah. the, the special Tom mount system that Gene used and I saw what is that? What's the special Tom mount system? Well, it's a, it was a flat bar system that somebody at Slingerland came up with that, as I say in the book, there were, there were times when Gene indeed was the, the guinea pig user of, you know, of <laughs> every harebrained scheme that ever came out of the company. Um, this was one of those where, the idea was to have absolute and complete adjustability. And that was done with continuing to use the rail consulate base, mm -hmm. but have a different rod and a different system mounted on the TomTom -tom shell, which was basically just a flat bar clamped onto the rod or the rod clamped onto the flat bar. You can slide it up and down nearly the entire length of the shell. It didn't work. It was absurdly heavy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but Gene actually used that mount system on at least two of his Tom Toms. And you can see that in uh, quite a few pictures between uh, probably 48 and 53. 
And then, of course, it was gone. Well, the age-old story about the 9 by 13 that was allegedly stolen from the loading dock behind the Trianon ballroom that happened to show up in Don Bennett's collection and was for sale. The first thing I noticed, because there's always people who would contact me and say, is this really Gene? And I would have to oftentimes say, I need to see more pictures than just one. Yeah. I looked at it and I said, ah, there they are. The two holes that originally held that flat bar mount. So I knew that drum was Gene's from the very beginning. I did some research and found out what dates he was at the Trianon and how they corresponded to the drum itself. No question. Drum verified. Hmm. Um, as far as a lot of the other, what would seem more generic drums that Gene had, they all had little nuances, little details. Uh, the bass drum that's up in uh, at the Zildjian plant um, has the original painted head on it. Hmm. It does not have the original hardware on it because it turns out, after talking to the guy who donated the stuff to Zildjian, it was all changed because the original lug casings were falling apart. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know. Yeah. It, Interesting. It, it, digging with a big shovel, but at times being able to use a spoon if you have to. And that's, and that's my metaphor for the day. That's a, that's a good one. <laughs> I want to ask you about a super specific kind of random one. I just kind of scrolled by it, but I'm I'm very interested in this. Uh, sort of minor little detail about Gene's drums, but it's it's a big one that you see all the time. It's the stage screw, mm -hmm. which I'm always interested in that because right now we take for granted the fact that you know there's uh, there's there's things now literally created to stop it, like the kick block and the K brakes and stuff, and and the the the, the spurs are stronger. Right. But so, can you explain what a stage screw is? For okay. Starters, Th and maybe these were talk about it. These were cast iron. Um, giant screws um, and usually had three holes or four and the whole point was in order to secure a bass drum from moving forward you would set the bass drum and then you would run this screw straight into the floor and it would be the block that the later rim mounted um whatchamacallit, anchors, yeah, yeah, serve yeah. the same purpose. Did they have, while we're talking about the gear, a lot of times bass drums before then, you know, earlier would be a marching bass drum that was converted. But, like, there still were on these era of drums, like, you know, spurs, like feet coming off, right, for some stability, but it wasn't stopping the sliding as well right. as drummers. Famously. Right, and I, I think there's a, some misconception about what those rim mount spurs were for they as you say they were for stability so the thing didn't roll over um but there were any number of innovative ideas about how to keep the bass drum from walking away yeah uh, not least of which was tie a rope to the bass drum pedal clamp that down and then tie the other end of that rope to your seat and yeah. you know that worked okay as well um so and then you can still see film clips of guys I saw one the other day and I can't think of what it was where they've done nothing about stopping the bass drum and spend half their time pulling the bass drum back towards them Yeah, there's a wonderful picture of Gene in 42 
playing a concert that was a tribute to Fats Waller. And one of the shots when he's in, obviously in the middle of a solo is the bass player, John Kirby, leaning forward, standing to the right of Gene's bass drum, holding it in place. <laughs> Which, you, you know, you'd think that somebody would have figured out to at least get the poor guy a rug, something, anything to keep this bass drum from wandering around. But yeah. there's, you know, there's a legendary bass player leaning over holding Gene's bass drum in place while Gene played it. I've always loved that picture. That's so cool. And I, I, there's a video of Elvin Jones. I think it's Elvin Jones. I mean, he's playing a solo and he is chasing his bass drum <laughs> the entire time. But I have a picture of uh, my grandpa, Tom Connup, who passed away last year, who, um, uh, and people still do this to this day. He was playing with some guys. There was a guy playing like a, um, uh, clarinet. And then I think there was a bassist and he was on the drums and his bass drum had a big cinder block in front of it uh-huh. for obvious reasons, which that's another way you yeah. know, people we've all done that. We've all played a gig where you go, Oh my God, I don't have a, a rug. Give me something heavy. Yeah. <laughs> Put it in front of this thing. Right. Well, again, I mean, so much of the of the development of drum equipment, and like any other equipment, I guess you could say, was based entirely on need. Um, and yeah. yeah, I mean, if the only way you could get your bass drum to stop walking across the floor was to tie it to your leg, then, you know, so be it. And, yeah. And it's, I guess it's another contribution that Gene made that there were many things that were figured out based on his use of these things Um, and, you know, innovations in uh, virtually every piece of equipment that he had that he would try first or he and a few others would try, but case in point, the fully tunable tom-toms. You know, that was all Gene. How they were done was Sam Rowland, but it was Gene who actually was the one who made it happen. Um, Yeah. Before that, as you know, but maybe people don't know, that they would be tacked on heads, which couldn't be tuned. Right. Other than than with heat or humidity, sure. Yeah, yeah. But again, he had the first, as far as I've been able to tell, he had the first... American-made tacked head uh, that was um, seen by most people. The other thing people need to remember is the fact that we didn't have a system of communications, visual communications that we have now. So the only time somebody would actually have been able to see one of Gene's drum sets is if they were there. And, you know, of course, somebody in California had no idea what Gene's drums looked like unless they saw a picture in Downbeat until they came to whatever, the Palomar or the, you know, some other place. So the information transfer was much slower. Yeah, which is sort of uh, the the level of celebrity he got to. um, It just, it's it's that much more impressive that there wasn't, you know, posting something on Facebook or doing all these these little things he had to... um, you know, word of mouth spreads, which, which I do think also is kind of more of like a, there's like a, he's like legendary in yeah. that regard, obviously. He, um, de- he definitely earned his fame. That's no question about it. And a lot of the earning of that fame came from his equipment. You know, I mean, look at what happens. I posted this the other yesterday. Um, 
to the Finnish white marine pearl, which originally was not called white marine pearl. It was just called marine pearl. Hmm. Um, the white was added later, but look, uh, look at what, what gene can be credited for there. You know, um, he chose, he liked that finish. Who knows why? Uh, his first 28-inch Slingerland bass drum was white marine pearl. It's to this day probably the most popular, most revered drum finish of all. Yeah. You know, and I would be willing to bet you because of the volume of influence that Gene offered, if Gene liked orange sparkle, we'd all be playing orange sparkle sets today. Yeah. In some weird alternate universe, everyone's yeah. playing orange sparkle drums. Yeah, right. Or gold satin flame, you know? Yeah. No, it's got a, there's like a, um, gosh, there's, there's just like a, like an, like an excellence. There's just like a, like a beauty to white Marine Pearl that mm. it really goes back to those, to those guys. It's, it's like, uh, it's just a part of history. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's elegant as Gene was. That's the perfect word. That's what I was trying to find. Um, <laughs> now while we're talking about Gene's drums and, 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 you know, his obvious huge impact, all right, so how many of these, you're, you probably know about all of them, I would think, or most of them. You probably can't know about every single thing because um, it's still coming up. But how many Gene Krupa drum sets in, in this gear is still out there? Like, how, what's your take on all that? Well, there are isolated pieces. And the, the equipment that we put together for Charlie of the things that were discovered in 2018 is probably actually the only true drum set complete. Everything else is bass drums, and there are, uh, there are quite a number of those, actually. Three were discovered in 2018, but I have authenticated at least three other ones um, of the earlier era, the Radio King period. Um, and... Tom Toms, there are a number of those out there too. Uh, I think Don still has the nine by thirteen, and the the uh, my good friend Joe Lanny has been building up his Gene Krupa collection. Gene Joe actually now owns the thirteen I was talking about before with the flat bar mounts and. Snare drums are the hardest thing. Keep in mind that Gene gave this stuff away. Um, he didn't. As his health started to fail, he obviously must have realized that he didn't need a lot of stuff. Yeah. The bass drum that I authenticated that now lives in Australia with Andy, he gave that to a bartender in Vegas that wound up being an end table for the rest of its life God. until the daughter contacted uh, Bill Nally and sent it back. And now it lives in Australia in its rightful place as a bass drum instead of a table. Jeez. Uh, the, the contribution that, uh, that Michael Stan made uh, to Zildjian, uh, that bass drum is quite important mostly for the front head more than anything else, because it is indeed the original first version of the keep them flying head hmm. that was uh, replaced by a cardboard, uh, cardboard cover after that. 
Um, that's all in the book. Um, Interesting. So there, there are lots of stuff. And a lot of, I have to say, a lot of my motivation for this book was also pointing out the things that were not really genes. Yeah, which that has to come up a lot, I'm sure. It does. It comes up constantly, although I have to say less than it used to. Um, I was the victim of that scam 40 years ago. Good grief, Nick. 40 I was, well, the story's in the book. Basically, I was ripped off with an alleged gene group of drum set, and I was too stupid to realize. But it didn't take more than a few months before I figured it out. That still exists to this day. There are people out there who think they can make a copy of something that Gene owned and palm it off as belonging to Gene. And for me, a great motivation for this book was to make sure that that doesn't happen anymore. And <laughs> I've there are a number that I left out of the book because um, based on some good advice by my friend Chet Falzerano, um, <laughs> the original ideas I had about exposing all of these crooks um, was probably a bit more negative than I should have been. So, okay, I took his advice, but I did include yeah. a few. Sure. Um, and that was mostly just sort of letting people know that there are still people out there lying to them. And it needs to stop because it's, it's certainly not doing Gene's legacy any good. And no. it's, they thought it was so easy to do. Well, this book is here to prove that it's not going to be that easy anymore. No, not with, not with Brooks on the uh, <laughs> watching out for everyone. I do think there's probably some people who genuinely think that like, you know, their grandpa gave him a drum yeah. and dad. And then, and then they said, this is Gene Krupa's. And then, well, yeah. And that's, that's part of the issue is there's never been anyone to answer their question definitively. Um, you know, is this really Gene's drum? I mean, I've, I've had that question posed to me numerous times and it's not easy to say, well, actually no. Um, but it's preferable to continuing a myth forever. Um, you know, the multiple badge snare drum is a perfect example. Um, that's a myth. It's just a lie. Hmm. And, you know, frankly needs to stop, in my opinion. So yeah. this at least gives everybody the opportunity to look at what they think they have and go, oh, okay, it's not really genes. And you know, they can do that in the privacy of their own living room. With the book. <laughs> <laughs> right. You can get on HudsonMusic.com. So you can go check your own uh, Gene stuff. Wow. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, you're, you're doing a good thing, obviously, just to keep keep it in, in check and, and stop. It's, it's so interesting that in every aspect, I think in every, you know, part of collectible stuff in the world, there's um, there's people trying to fake something. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know, and counterfeit. Um, right. I'm also a World War II historian, have a sizable collection of clothing and equipment. You'd be amazed at the stuff that people palm off as real. Hmm. You know, they'll get a decent copy of a leather A2 flight jacket and lay it out in the driveway and drive their car over it for a couple of days <laughs> to make it look old. Yeah. Yeah. Just mind. And they get away with it. That's the kicker. 
you know. Mm. Um, what's creepy is that the market for German stuff and fakes is three times the size of anything else. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. but yeah, you're right. I mean, there are people, Jerry tells a story about a collector of old music machines, old record players. Uh, some of that are worth huge money and somebody was very proud of their acquisition until somebody said, well, it's actually not what you think. Um, kind of a devastating thing for a lot of it people is. who think they've got something really valuable. Yeah. It's very, uh, it's like deflates you a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Geez, well, wow. you know, we, we are all very proud of ourselves based on what stuff we have. <laughs> oh yeah. You definitely. know, I mean, I've got a Toyota Tundra pickup with 410,000 miles out in the driveway by golly. And you know, (laughs) yeah. Toyotas, man. I I have a Toyota Tacoma, um, Ah. kind of the, the smaller brother. It's nowhere near what, what 400 man. They run forever, but they uh, do. They do. They're great cards. So the book is, the book is there for anybody who's really interested in Gene and his equipment. And yeah, there are a couple of soapbox moments in there too, but you know, I can't resist. Um, they're also, it's yeah. also there so that they can contribute to the overall knowledge base about Gene. Um, yeah, hopefully definitely. someone would, you know, be able to answer a question of somebody else based on what they've learned in the book. Yeah. Um, now before we kind of wrap up here, what about his, um, Billy Gladstone signature drum. I mean, that's the black drum. I mean, that's a beautiful drum. Was there any story behind that? Oh, quite a lot there. I mean, it was actually one of the earliest ones that Gladstone made. Um, And it's a prime example of of a Gladstone snare as far as everything. Black lacquer finish, um, 7 by 14. Uh, the only thing that really differentiated that drum from Gladstone's own gold one was the color. Hmm. Um, Gene was intensely proud of that drum. Oddly enough, Gene actually had two Billy Gladstone snare. Uh, the second one, I think, was, as Chet mentioned, I think the second one was uh, possibly Gene... Just out of curiosity, it was Black Diamond Pearl. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's presently owned by a, a, a friend and someone who helped immensely with the book, Joe Vitrano. Um, but the black one, Gene absolutely revered in the right circumstances, meaning it had gut snares. Um, he was, Gene was apparently incensed when his black diamond pearl had come back from Frank's in New York and somebody had changed it to wire snares mm. that, that to, to Gene, that was just sacrilege, you know, put wire snares on a Gladstone. Come on. Yeah. Um, the, the black one, I am very proud to say that I, <laughs> I spent the whole day with that drum and cool. I, I played it. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's it's actually a, a YouTube clip of me playing on that snare. Um, it was just amazing. And again, it's one of the things that it's so much more fun to think about now than I was really even quite aware at the time. What was, you know, here I was playing Gene Krupa's own 
black lacquer Billy Gladstone snare drum and desecrating it with some horrible drum solo. (laughs) (laughs) And just just hoping that. It, hoping that if Gene's spirit was out there, he was benign and being nice. <laughs> he would be happy. You know he'd be he'd be nice. Um, I like to think so. <laughs> God, that has to be a valuable snare. Oh, my God. I mean, that has to be worth a fortune. It is. It's worth a lot of money, but um, it's, it's well cared for. And hopefully, yeah. you know, as someone wise mentioned, we're, you know, we're only caretakers of this stuff, you know. We don't last forever. It will move on to somebody else. Yeah, Although I, I must confess, I'm going to be fascinated to see what happens to Mike Corrado's collection. <laughs> yeah, God. When he was on the show, 650-ish snares. I mean, yeah. unbelievable. That's, that's a lot of dusting, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> dusting, yeah. More dusting than I'd care to do. I'll, I'll pass. Okay. Yeah. No, I would well, I mean, I've, I've had... Since I moved here, I've had many, many, many Slingerland Radio King drums. There's still more than 30 sets back there. Wow. Um, but, I, you know, the whole focus shifted um, to just collecting things that Gene would have had, replicas, copies, whatever. Yeah. And then it, itself has become quite an adventure. You know, oh, yeah. the, the, that's it's even harder. It's more indeed, specific. Indeed, absolutely. And I've had to fabricate a few, like the double tack headed Tom that he was using in 36. I had to make one myself. Um, Hmm. And I'm guessing that probably because that was the only one ever made. It's like the the people get all excited about 14 by 14 floor Toms. I don't think many people realize that Gene had the very first ones. And they were, there was 12 lugs, six per end. And they were radio Kings. Man. And, you know, the earliest one was, was up as early as 42, maybe even 41. Gosh, man, what, Gene got what Gene wanted from Slingerland, I'm sure. I believe he did, yes. And at the same time, he never took advantage of that. No. You know, he was always very classy about his relationship with, with Slingerland. A classy uh, guy through and through. Absolutely. And that's, that's kind of the... Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, Brooks, let's, um, so again, people can go to hudsonmusic.com and just search GK, the tools that built the Gene Krupa legend. And I'm going to link to it. So if you're, you know, wherever you're listening to this, if it's on the website or wherever, I can go to the description and, and I'll have a little, uh, a link to that there. Um, and if you've enjoyed hearing, uh, Brooks talk, which I'm sure you have, um, head over to, uh, drumhistorypodcast.com and click the Patreon link because um, we're going to yeah. do a little bo- bonus do that. episode. Do that. <laughs> <laughs> Where I think it's about, I mean, and I'm not going to keep in every episode pushing it, but I think every week I'm going to do that, you know, for as little as two bucks a month, um, you'll get an extra, you know, 10, 15 minute episode with, uh, with the guest. So on that note, um, Brooks, I just can't thank you enough for coming on and I am so happy for you that you got this book out must be a huge relief um so thanks for sharing your knowledge with us thank you Bart my pleasure and thank you for doing all that you do if you like this podcast find me on social media at drum history and please share rate and leave a review and let me know topics that you would like to learn about in the future until next time keep on learning